Well, praise the Lord. I love that song so much because at the end, it kind of reminds me of those old Civil War movies, you know, where there's, the troops are lined up and they're kind of standing about 20 feet from each other and they're trying to get the courage to be ready for battle. But what's exciting about that song is that in our case, the victory is not dependent on our courage or on our ability or on us having the right strategy. It's on the unfailing power and sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is all based on what he has done. And he never forsakes those who love him. He never fails us. And the Bible says he's capable and willing to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Can you imagine such a thing? The fact that we even get to pray, the fact that we even get to go to his throne would be enough. But God says, when you ask, I'll do way above what you even want. I'll do way above what you even need. And that's what's so wonderful about the Lord. His help and provision is never just enough. You know, sometimes you ask somebody to do a favor for you and it's like, ah, okay. They kind of begrudgingly do it and it's just enough to get by. The Lord never does that. He says, I'll do far beyond what you need. I'll pass your expectations. I'll, I'll, I'll be there for you in ways that you can't imagine. And that means that our trust for him should never lack. Our confidence in him should never lack. And when we have fear, I've struggled with some fear this week. When we have fear, God says, you don't need to worry. You don't need to fear. I got it. I'm not going to let you slip. I never slumber. I'm never indifferent. I'm not sleeping. I'm not distracted. I'm not watching TV. You can come back to me later. I'm right there. I'm ready. I'm ready to work. The most amazing thing about that is we don't deserve a drop of his grace. Not even a drop. We don't deserve any of it. And even more amazing than that is that he initiates it. He doesn't wait for us. He initiates it. He says, you have a need, I'll meet your need. I'll move your sin out of the way and I'll step over the piles of your past. And I'll send my son, Jesus, to restore you to a pure relationship with me. Our text of the morning is a picture of that in a small way, a thousand years before Christ even came. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 9. Leading up to this chapter, there has been a significant change in the political and spiritual climate of Israel. Saul, the first king, who was not God's choice, but was the people's choice, picked for his good looks and his popularity and his supposed strength, had died. And with him, three of his four sons, including Jonathan, who was David's closest friend. And David is now fully established as the king, but immediately as he becomes king, he faces two conflicts. The first, a small civil war that breaks out, and the second, a an attempt by Saul's fourth son to establish his own kingdom. He is subsequently killed, and David is established. And then the Philistines come along, and they decide they want to wage war. But God has his hand on David, and all three of the battles, they're successful, and they win, just like we just sang in the song. And then David decides that the Ark of the Covenant needs to come to Jerusalem, and then he starts to plan to build a temple to the Lord, a place of God's dwelling that would be permanent, like the tabernacle was was temporary and moved around. Now there was going to be one place. 
And God says, I love you, David, and I appreciate your desire, but you're a man of of war, and and you have shed a lot of blood, and I'm not going to let you build it. I'm going to have your son build it. But the Lord does establish a covenant with David. And he says, your throne is going to be forever. Your kingdom will be forever, and I will establish it. And my loving kindness will follow you all the days of your life. It will trail down to your descendants. We know that Jesus himself came from the line of David. That was one of the blessings of the covenant that God gave to David. Now, this is an amazing promise. And at this point in his reign, as we start chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, David has God's full favor and he has complete power over his enemies. It seems like almost nothing can go wrong, especially as he stays close to the Lord. Of course, this could be a total ego trip for him. He could decide that his pride is going to explode and and that he's going to make it about himself. He will in a couple chapters, chapter 11. But that's a very dangerous place to be, and it's why the Lord allows trials in our lives. It's why the Lord allows difficulty in our lives, so that we will keep our perspective when things are going well. Because how many know that when things are going well, it's very easy to forget the blessings of God and the benefits of trusting God, and to start to think that this is going to be normative and that it's because of our own strength and our own ability and our own wisdom. When we are going well, we tend to forget the Lord and how faithful he's been. And that was obvious when you look at the total disarray of Saul's kingdom. What once had been mighty now is down to a few daughters and a couple concubines and there's really nothing left. And this was the perfect opportunity for David to establish his own authority Not that he doesn't have enough already, but it's the opportunity from a human standpoint for him really to squash Saul's kingdom and squash Saul's memory and to to kind of give Saul what had been coming to him. Because Saul had tried to publicly humiliate David. Now maybe he can turn the tables and take his family through every failure possible. That's what a lot of politicians do, right? They seize the opportunity, even for something small, a little comment even that's made we see explode in the 24-hour news cycle well imagine what the complete fall of the kingdom would look like and how a political opponent could capitalize on that david has unlimited political capital at this point he has god's favor why not seize the moment but from the analytical spiritual side that's where the danger to misuse our power comes into play how often do we leverage that kind of advantage in our relationships where the other person messed up, where they failed to meet our expectations of what we thought they should be, or they hurt us, or something has happened to damage and we've been offended, and and in our humanity we want to lash out or we want to kind of undermine them socially or, or make them feel weak or insecure so that we can have a relational advantage. It's kind of this odd, devious, damaging game that we sometimes play, but not David. His relationships were constantly marked by integrity and grace and sacrifice. That's why the sin with Bathsheba is so shocking. It just comes a couple chapters later. This man who had integrity and who loved the Lord and served the Lord and trusted in the Lord and stood for the Lord and had relationships that were integrous, even though people disliked him and hated him, pursued him, tried to kill him, that all, all of a sudden he, he decides to make it about himself. And that's why 
the whole episode of Bathsheba just becomes such a such a shocking, uncharacteristic moment for David. Because David was gracious to people, especially his enemies. And it was one of the main contrasts between Saul and David. Saul was so selfish and inadequate, and David was so humble and confident in the Lord, and Saul didn't really have any connection with the Lord. He was openly jealous of David, and not really because he was anointed king or because he had the respect of the people. That would have been enough. When you think about what Saul went through when he watches David or hears of David being anointed while he's still king, and he knows that the hand of the Lord comes off of him, and he knows that he's losing the favor of the Lord, and he starts to do crazy things, and he goes and sees a witch, and, and he's just he, he kind of loses his mind. But I don't think he was upset and jealous because David had been anointed king or because the people praised David. He was jealous, I believe, because David was so close to the Lord and Saul wasn't. And it drove David's decision-making and it drove his relationships and, and, and Saul just couldn't understand it and this whole world kind of collapses and he's not walking with the Lord and every relationship that he has goes into conflict. You know, when our hearts are not right with the Lord, it damages our relationships. When our hearts are not right with the Lord, when we're not walking with the Lord, our relationships are affected and we start to want to kind of subtly harm the other person. That's why when I meet a couple for marriage counseling, the first thing I want to find out is where are you spiritually? And a lot of times people aren't forthright about that because they think they can hide it. But I know that the real issue is not just, well, you know, she doesn't turn the toilet paper the right way or, or he doesn't you know, make dinner the right way or uh, nobody ever cleans up or the dishwasher's not loaded correctly. You know, these fun things that we love to kind of snip at each other about? That's not the issue. Everybody knows the toilet paper comes over the top. Do I get an amen? Come on, tell me. That's right. You underneath people, I don't get you guys, all right? That's not what damages a marriage. That's not what leads to breakup of relationships. What leads to breakup of relationships is our hearts not being right with the Lord. Because listen, when you're surrendered to the Holy Spirit, it affects the way you think and feel and love, and it changes the way you function in a relationship. It's the only way a relationship can be normal. Now, David proves this. I want you to look at this text. I want, to see, I want you to see his character here because it's... It's amazing what he does here, and there's a very interesting study here in this text. Let's start chapter 9, verse 1. Thank you for turning. Then David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul? Then I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, Is there not yet... Anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. And David said, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Mebaphabesh. Ah, let me try it again. Let's just pronounce it right. I'll try to pronounce it as we would pronounce it again. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he said, here is your servant. David said to him, do not fear, 
For I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul and you'll eat at my table regularly. Again, he prostrated himself and said, Where is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I give to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So he lived in Jerusalem and ate at the king's table regularly. And again, for some reason, the spirit mentions, now he was lame in both feet. At the pinnacle of David's first success, which was all because of the Lord's hand, all because of the Lord's blessing, at the, at the start of his success, he seeks out someone else to bless. And in this case, it's his enemy's grandson. Now, that raises an important question for us right at the outset. And it's something that I I want us to kind of have in our hearts and kind of have ruminating underneath the surface as we study through this passage. The question is, am I seeking out opportunities to bless and encourage and strengthen other people? Am I actively seeking out the opportunity to bless people, not just getting by, not just getting along with everybody, not just existing. This is about actively looking for an opening to build somebody up, as we talked about last week, whether it's a fellow believer or somebody that doesn't even know the Lord. How often do we go over and above? How often do we extend ourselves, even at the cost of our own pride, even at the cost of something to us? How often do we extend ourselves in order to show mercy and restore relationships? Not saying what we want to, not doing what we want to, but doing what will build up and edify other people. How important is that in our marriages? How important is it in our families and at work and at church? The weight of relationships rests on us. And it's easy to blame others or easy to say, well, they didn't do the right thing. And that may even be justified. But we could make a huge difference in changing the environment of our relationships. Imagine if we not only made just a little bit of effort, but imagine if we aggressively were intentional about extending mercy and favor to other people for the purpose of edifying them. Now, growing up, David was best friends with Jonathan. That was, as the kids say, awkward. Because Jonathan was Saul's son. And Saul had thrown the book at David. He was trying to do anything he could to prevent him from becoming king. And David had purposely held back his hand. He had opportunities to damage Saul. He had opportunities even to kill Saul. But he said, I'm not going to touch the one that the Lord has put in place as king. If the Lord wants to take him out, fine, the Lord will do that. But I'm not going to be the one that causes it. He knew that even though the Lord had taken his hand off of Saul, even though the Bible says the spirit had left Saul, even though God had anointed David through Samuel before Saul was even done. 
David says, I'm not touching him. I'm not going to mess with the one that God has put in that place. So after Saul dies, it's kind of a natural assumption. We would think from a human standpoint, well, he'll get back at him now. Now that he's actually dead, now he'll punish the family. He'll get his retribution later. And Jonathan's dead, so he doesn't really have that bond. There's nothing that would hold him back from from getting even. But notice that David does exactly the opposite. He intentionally looks for an opportunity to minister to Samuel's, to Saul's family. Back in 1 Samuel 20, David and Jonathan had made a covenant with each other because they knew the tension between the families and they knew that it was not going to end well. And David and, Samuel, uh, David and Jonathan meet and they say, let's make a pact between us. This will be binding. We're going to still be friends. We're going to still take care of each other's families. We're still going to minister to each other. We're going we're gonna to defend each other, despite the fact that, Jonathan says, that my dad hates you and wants to kill you. Let's make a covenant between us that will always help each other's families. Now, Jonathan is dead. And instead of ignoring the pact that he and Jonathan made, David says, I'm going to carry through on my covenant. I'm going to try to bless Jonathan's family and Saul's family because covenants are important and they're serious. When we make a covenant before the Lord, when we stand there on our wedding day and say, I promise to love, honor, cherish till death do us part. God's not saying, well, that's fine. Just, you know, do your best. If it doesn't work out, you know, there are courts for that. That's a permanent covenant that we stand before the Lord and make to God and these witnesses. And we say, until death separates us, I will do everything to make this marriage work. And even if it struggles, I'm not giving up because this is not optional. When we have a child, we have a responsibility before the Lord to raise that child. We can't just say, well, I don't feel like it. Or or I think I'll shirk my responsibilities and let the world take care of it. And then we stand before the Lord and we hold the baby and we say, we're going to, we're going to dedicate them to the Lord. That's a covenant with the Lord. Covenants are serious. And David knew the enduring responsibility of a covenant. So he says, look back at verse 1. He says, is there anyone left in the house of Saul I can show kindness to? Now there are two key distinctions that we need to see here that are very important as they relate to both the text and as they relate to to our lives and our relationships. The first thing I want you to notice is in verse 1, I'm going to get real real technical here. Notice the noun. The noun is key. He says, my purpose is to minister not to the house of Jonathan. My purpose is to minister to anyone in the house of Saul. Now, why do we make a big deal of that? Why is the noun important? Because Saul had been the one who was his adversary, who had set himself up as his opponent. So it would be easy for David to say, oh, I want to minister to the house of Jonathan. He was my best friend. We made a covenant. He was always kind to me. His stinking dad, I don't care about him. Saul can rot for all I care. That's what he could say, but he doesn't. He says, is there anyone of the house of Saul that I can minister to? And that shows the purity and intent of David, that he's not selfish or not even conditional. How hard is that principle to live? 
that our promises and our grace and our mercy to each other is not conditional. He decides to show mercy to someone who made his life miserable. Think about the person in your life right now who's causing you the most aggravation. Who's irritating you the most. Who you don't really want to see, you don't want to talk to, you don't want to run across because they're just driving you crazy. Imagine showing this kind of sacrifice and this kind of favor toward them. The extent to which we just cringed, oh, are you kidding me? I couldn't do that. That shows the extent of our mercy. We all have limits. We're human. But, but how low is our limit? David says, I want to minister to the house of Saul. And then second, would you see that he does this because he wants to show the kindness of God to Saul's household for Jonathan's sake. That word kindness is a very wonderful Hebrew word. I'm pretty sure we've studied it before. It's the word hesed, H-E-S-E-D, hesed. It means kindness to the greatest possible extent. We have varying levels of kindness, don't we? Hi, good to see you. How are you this morning? Nice to have you here. Hey, my friend, how are you? Hey, let's go do lunch. Oh, my wife, my child. Oh, I'm so glad to see you. Hesed goes way, 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 way beyond that. It's the fullest extent of personal kindness that we can possibly give. He says, that's the kindness I want to show to Saul's house. It's a personal commitment that that goes beyond any expectation. And notice that it's the kindness of God. Why is that important? Why do we need that little preposition? Because David is saying, I've experienced the kindness of God in my own life. It's changed who I am. Now I want to extend that to others. How much is that the motivation for how we act in relationships? Because of what God has done. Oh, now it drives me to do the same for others. We, we choked up as we sang that song. Oh my God, you will not delay my refuge and strength always. I mean, think about the power of those words. What God has done for us. Now he says, do it to each other. I've shown you kindness you can't fathom. I've shown you love you will never comprehend. I've shown you grace that has been complete. I've forgiven you and declared you my own. Now love others like I love you. And we go, what? And he says, "Uh uh-uh, there's no ifs. Remember the video? There's no ifs. There's no excuse. There's no reason. There's nothing that's good enough. I love you. You love me. You love others. Do it video because I did it. What would we do without the love and mercy of God this morning? I mean, really. How different our lives would be. Different values, different motivations, different thoughts, different actions, different purposes. But God, in his great love, while we were yet sinners, died for the ungodly. Guess who that is? That's us. While we were yet sinners, without his mercy, we would have nothing. We would be miserable. And yet he says, my mercy's new every day. 
and my mercies will never fail. So David does something God would have done. And what God did, he extends mercy that's undeserved. Look at the text. He seeks out an opportunity to show grace and blessing to someone who didn't seek it and who wasn't worthy of it. Mephibosheth, the lame grandson of Saul, seemingly the last male in a family with a sordid and sad history, comes to the palace not knowing David's intent. Lameness was especially difficult in that era because you couldn't work. You couldn't get around. There were no, you know, scooters and and whatever the case may be. It was hard rock and gravel and unpaved roads and you would have to drag yourself from place to place or get some sort of crutch moving along and people weren't sensitive. They didn't care. You were considered less than. So they would just walk by you. And Mephibosheth not only has the disability, but at this point, there's a relational disability. Why is David calling him in? Is David want to wipe out the final male in the family? Is this death sentence? What's going on here? Is he the final nail in the coffin of his grandfather's pathetic legacy? Is this it? I want you to notice how he comes to the throne. This, oh, this has got to stand out to you, okay? Look at verse 6, and then it's going to repeat itself in verse 8. He comes to the throne by whatever means. I don't know if he's dragging himself or in some kind of vehicle of some sort or crutches or whatever the case may be. The point is he can't walk. And what strikes me is twice in the text, it says that he prostrates himself. He falls on his face, broken and unworthy and maybe scared. Now that's an especially humbling reaction because he's crippled. He has to extricate himself from whatever device he's in to move around. And then he has to fall on the ground and he has no idea how he's getting back up. Will somebody help him or will the king take a sword and cut off his head? He has no idea. But he falls on his face. And I love verse 7. Oh, look at it. What David does here is so beautiful. He immediately offers kindness and mercy and restoration to Mephibosheth. This is not clinical or or cursory. It's not some weird obligation to settle the issue once and for all and put Mephibosheth in his place. This is an action of love and respect for his friend's son. This is a way to minister to and honor his friend, even though he's dead, through his family. And I wondered what David thought as he saw Mephibosheth. It had been years since he has seen his friend's son. Maybe he remembers the day he was born. And how proud his best friend was as he held his son. Maybe he remembered the tragic news. That when Jonathan was killed in battle. That the nurse who was carrying little Mephibosheth who was five. Was running to get away because she was scared what was going to happen. And dropped him. And he became paralyzed. Maybe he choked back tears as he thought, oh my goodness, how much you've changed. The last time I saw you, 
You were just a little toddler. Now you're a dad. We all know that game, right? When you haven't seen a child for a while, oh, you've grown so much, can't believe you've changed. You look just like your dad. Can you imagine what he felt as he watched his best friend's son work his way into the room and fall on his face? And David says, you don't have to worry. I'm not going to harm you. I'm going to show you kindness like God's shown kindness to me. And I'm going to restore all your land, all your real estate, and I'm going to give you people that will cultivate it because you can't work. And they'll bring in the food and you'll have constantly what you need. I'll help you financially. And, And let me take it up a level. I want you to come eat at my table all the time. Now that last honor in the the ancient world was huge. Because if you got invited to eat at the king's table, usually it was for the purpose to maintain political support. So the elite would be brought in. The people with the cash. You know, this doesn't happen in politics at all, right? Get the wealthy, get the prominent, get the influential. Hey, come to my table. Have dinner with me. And they'd sit around and talk about the political climate. Hey, you know, you could really help me. You, you, could, you could do a favor for me. If you could give me some support, then I can support you. Little, little hand feeding the other hand, right? So if you were invited to the king's table, it meant status. It meant influence. It meant you had an in with the king, who was the most powerful man. David says, you, I want you to come to my table and eat. The table was powerful. Debbie will talk about it at the Christmas tea. Ladies, you need to hear what she's going to say. It's amazing what she says about the power of the table. So this was a huge moment for Mephibosheth. This changed his life forever. The kindness of God, now the kindness of David. That's what relationships should be based on. And what does the kindness of God relationship look like? I try to figure out. How do you phrase this relationship? I'm just going to call it a kindness of God relationship. What does that look like? What's it look like when we make intentional decisions in our hearts and minds to purposely build up and edify and strengthen and show mercy to each other? I want to give you four words this morning. Four words that will tell us what it looks like straight out of the text. Start in verse 3. The first word is communication. When we are in kindness of God relationships, there is clear communication. David does not hide his plans. He doesn't say, hey, well, I'm going to do some things, but I'm not going to tell you right now. I'm going to let you string in the wind a little bit. and We'll see how you do and see if you meet the standard, and then I'll show you what I'm going to do. But right now I'm going to withhold that information to have an advantage. He says, here's what I'm going to do right up front. He goes right to Ziba, and he says, I'm going to bless the house of Saul. Why does he do that? Maybe to relieve some of the anxiety that Mephibosheth had. And that's a reasonable conclusion because he falls on his face and he's laying there and he's like, please don't kill me, please don't kill me, please don't kill me. And David says, you don't have to worry. He sensed the anxiety. So he gives clarity up front and that's a valuable principle that needs to filter down into our relationships. There is great power in assuring another person in advance that the intent of the relationship, at least from your standpoint, is to love and sacrifice and to show mercy. And then to back it up. 
Why don't we do that? We don't do that because of past hurt. Because we did that before and somebody burned us. Because somebody was mean to us. Because somebody damaged us. So we don't want to extend ourselves. We don't want to say, I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody say this in marriage counseling. Well, I'm not going to do that because the other person's always disappointed me. And I say, keep going. And they look at me like I'm crazy. Keep going. Keep sacrificing. Keep giving. Keep loving. Listen, they're not going to be won by your by your indifference and by your your emotional separation, they're going to be won by you show, by you showing them the kindness of God day after day after day after day after day. That's how they'll be won. David hasn't seen Mephibosheth for years, but he doesn't prejudge him or wait. He plans to show him kindness, and notice that he does it with joy. This isn't just like hi, Mephibosheth. How's it going? Great to see you. Yeah, I'll help you. Anybody think David talked like that? Honestly, I'm going to read in the text a little bit. I think as this man came into the room, David's eyes welled up with tears. And he saw his friend's son. And he saw his friend in his son's face. And he said, oh, I'm so glad to see you. It's been, what, 20, 25 years? Oh, I miss your dad. Let me help you. Let me bless you. This is Jonathan's flesh and blood. Let me minister to you as an extension of him. Think about how that would change things at work tomorrow. If you started from the point of joyfully serving and sacrificing to other people especially the ones that don't deserve your kindness. Think how it would change your marriage if your default is not to be selfish and defensive, but to be sacrificial and edifying. And then you took the proactive steps to make that happen. Second, would you see in verse 7, compassion. Notice the thoroughness of David's care. He doesn't just say, okay, I won't punish you. We'll work something out. That's never the attitude. He clearly could have punished Mephibosheth, but he doesn't. Instead, he gives him a place of strength and security. Relationships need strength and security. And men, let me talk to you for a minute. This is one of our most primary responsibilities as husbands, to provide for our wives with one of their core relational needs, to be physically, emotionally, relationally, financially, and spiritually secure. We are wired differently. I know that's a shock to you ladies, but just go with me on this, okay? Men are wired differently. We're very pragmatic. We take problems. We try to solve them, and we move on. We don't need a lot of talking. We don't need a lot of processing. We just want to do it and be done with it. Do I get an amen, sisters? Don't be too eager to say amen, okay? But men, we need to continually provide love and care that fosters security in our bride's hearts. We need to do what gives them strength and what gives them security. So we should be looking for every single opportunity we can find to show love and compassionate care for each other 
and that should be done out of love, yes, but remember, emotions are fickle, and the enemy loves to play with them. So we need to do it because we love the Lord, first and foremost. The enemy hates love, and God is love. So you want to frustrate the devil's intentions? Start loving the way God loves, and it will drive him crazy. He hates love. And we most please the Lord, first and second greatest commandment, we most please the Lord when we love him and we love each other with the kindness of God. Colossians 3.12 says, have bowels of compassion. It's a heart that continuously is filled with compassion for each other. Every single moment we need to show each other love and compassion. We need to exceed other person's expectations. I once worked at a, a host at a steak restaurant probably, I don't know, 30 years ago. Yeah, I am old. Thank you for asking. And I'll never forget, 30 years later, they said the goal of our restaurant, and many restaurants say this, the goal of our restaurant is to exceed our guests' expectations. From the moment they walk in, and are greeted, and are taken to their table, and the server comes up, the food, how it is, whether it's hot, whether it's tasty, whether it's a good value for the money, when they receive the check, is it promptly taken care of, are they greeted out the door? From the moment they walk in, we want to exceed their expectations. Now, if that's the expectation for selling a steak, how much more should it be for those who know Christ as their Savior? How much more should it be in our marriage, in our families? in our friendships, even in our church. If you're a guest today, I hope we have exceeded your expectation of what church should be like. I hope you were genuinely greeted. I hope we took care of your children well. I hope that you saw worship without any pretense. I hope that when you saw people up here on the platform, you didn't think, oh, they're trying to show off or, or, or make it about themselves. Listen, that's not the goal. The goal is to praise Jesus Christ. So our goal is to exceed your expectations. And that should be true of every single relationship there is. Compassion. Third, quickly, I know time's out. Verse 7, contentment. David goes above and beyond anything Mephibosheth could have expected, especially after his grandfather had been so cruel. You would think David would have written off the whole family for the pain they caused. Instead, he changes Saul's grandson's life. Not because he was crippled or he felt sorry for him. He does it because he loved the Lord and he loved his father. And he even wanted to show grace to Saul. So he offers an environment of contentment without conditions. This is one of the greatest inhibitors. Sorry, I don't mean to talk so much about marriage this morning. But this is one of the greatest inhibitors to relationships and especially to marriage. It's when we remain dissatisfied with who the other person is or we try to change them and make them who we want to be without success. One of the things that's kind of funny but sad when I counsel people who are early into their marriage, say a year, year and a half, as many times they'll come in and they're disillusioned that the person is different than they thought they were going to be. And what was cute in courtship? Remember those days? Oh, yeah, everything you do is so cute. I love you. 
You hang up first. No, I no, not doing that. Right? The things that were cute in courtship are now an irritant. Am I right? And guess, no, I'm not right. I'm, thank you, Jim. And you know what the enemy does? He exploits it. If you've ever read the book, The Screwtape Letters, what an insight Lewis gives into how the devil twists those things that should be wonderful into things that are irritating. We start to be filled with a little bit of discontent and it grows and it exacerbates and then we hold on to it and we don't give it up. We don't say, listen, I probably do some things that irritate them too. And then it becomes full-blown chronic dissatisfaction. And when we hit that point, it either becomes a rallying cry to draw closer to each other and to make more sacrifices or it becomes a dividing point that nobody wants to resolve and everybody avoids and everybody loses interest and there's emotional separation. And they start to withhold affection and emotional intimacy and and even in some cases common decency and the kids become a surrogate to kind of fill the gap in the middle. Listen, we have to fight that. We have to fight it. I often tell couples, your life needs to be like train tracks that are going toward the horizon. Your marriage should not be like the Chicago train yard where everything's going off in crazy directions. You should be like two parallel rails that as they come closer to the, to the horizon, what happens when they hit the horizon? Looks like they're one. That's what marriage should be. Where you're not pulling against each other, you're pulling toward each other. And listen, if the other person's doing something damaging, let the Lord take care of it. Pray for them. But also pray for yourself. Lord, challenge me first before I start to pick on them and start to say, oh, if they would just change everything, it'd be right. No, let the Lord humble you first. Never start with the other person. Always start with yourself. And you know, at the very least, when the person comes back and apologizes, it won't give you an attitude of, "Ah, see, I was right. I've seen a lot of people that do not want to change simply out of spite because they know the other person is just waiting to say, I told you so. So they say, well, forget it. I'm not doing that. See, if there was an attitude of grace and mercy, the other person would be eager. Let me give you the last one. Let's pray. Calmness. Calmness. Peace in a relationship is only produced when selflessness is practiced. Let me say it again. Peace in a relationship is only produced when selflessness is practiced. Instead of everybody claiming their own rights and being suspicious and accusing, the Bible tells us to live in peace with one another. It's the difference between a palm tree and an oak tree. A palm tree is built to withstand Hurricane force winds. It's flexible. It it bends with the wind rather than resisting it. We might even say that a palm tree goes with the conflict. And then there's an oak tree. It stands tall and proud and stiff and unbending and unyielding with its branches majestically stretched out. Now we see it with the leaves off, almost defying the weather. Come on! 
You'll never look at oak trees the same way. Oh, man. Rhodes was right. Look at that thing. Ever know anybody like that? Don't say yes. Ah, this is how it is. But what happens when the stress of the wind comes? It can't withstand the conflict and the branches snap. Listen, I know this is silly, but we should be more like palm trees. Withstanding conflict, bending a little more, yielding a little more, weathering a little more of the storm in order to stay standing. David could have been an oak tree. He had every right and every authority to do it. But he says, that's not what we're going to do. And what he does for Mephibosheth goes way beyond fields and dinner and whatever. He takes the stigma off of him and he treats him like his own son and he shows him mercy, not just once, but for the rest of his life. What a parallel to the grace of God. We don't deserve his love. We don't deserve his mercy. We don't deserve his grace. We certainly don't deserve restoration. David just does it in a little way, taking all the burden off, removing all the stigma, and treating Mephibosheth like his own son. God says, I will do it all. I will take the stain of sin off of you. I will remove the penalty. And I will call you, not just treat you like it. I will call you my child. And Luke twenty two thirty, Jesus says, I want you to eat and drink at my table in the kingdom. Can you imagine such a thing? that God would have that much mercy to restore us to a right relationship with Him when we're completely and utterly undeserving. Now, we are supposed to take that and make that true of our relationships. And what a challenge that is that He will help us kindness of God in our relationships 24 hours a day, seven days a week. May God help us. Let's pray together. I want to take just a second. If the Lord has spoken to you this morning and you never understood His mercy quite the way you did today because the Holy Spirit has been working on your heart and teaching you. I want to invite you to come to the table of the Lord's mercy. Jesus Christ died for your sins. He rose again to defeat sin and death forever. He says if we confess our sins... I am faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And when you do that, I will declare you to be my child. And if you need that this morning, 
if you finally understand it and you're tired of living for yourself and tired of walking in sin, I want to encourage you when this service is over, I will be up on the right side of the platform here. Please come up and talk to me or Randy will be on the left side. You can come up and talk to him. Grab somebody next to you. Say, I want to learn more about this. I want to know what it is to be saved. I don't know all of you this morning. I don't know where you stand with the Lord. But God's mercy is available. He is waiting to forgive you. Please don't miss that opportunity. Lord, we need help in our relationships. We laugh about the illustrations and we cringe a little bit when we hear something that kind of digs a little deep into our spirit. But Lord, we need help in our relationships. We need to be people who show the kindness of God every single day in our marriages, with our children, in our church, at work, as we minister to people who are saved and unsaved. Lord, that the kindness that you show to us would be pouring out of our lives. Lord, help us this morning. The enemy right now is working, even as we pray, to tell us that this is not true, that we don't need to make more effort, that we've done enough. Lord, he's a liar and he's accuser, and we pray you would eliminate his influence. We know your word is true. We know this is right. Now, Father, help us by your Holy Spirit to live this way. Starting now, starting as we walk out the door, that our relationships would be seasoned with grace, that your kindness would extend. Lord, that you would heal what is broken, you would solve what is fractured, that you would prevent any more separation, any more division in marriages and in families and in churches. Lord, we ask you to work and we know you will because you're always available. Lord, we sang it earlier. You will not delay to help us. You're our refuge and our strength. And we ask you now to work. And we praise you that you're going to work. We praise you that your love and your kindness is unfailing. And we pray that with confidence this morning. Lord, we love you, we honor you, we worship you, and we praise you. And we look forward to what you are going to do. We thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.